I'm Ashley, and I'm going to be reading today. Um, we're going to be reading from Joshua 2. I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away from you. For you have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is a God in heavens and above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me that by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you, will not, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. All right. Um, yeah, so we'll be in Joshua 2. We will actually be covering the entire chapter of Joshua 2. I did not want to make you stand through all 24 verses of Joshua 2, nor did I want to make Ashley read all 24 verses of Joshua 2. So a little clue for you. Next week, we'll be going through all of Joshua 3, if you're reading ahead, um, so that you can have Joshua 3 read. We will not be... Uh, saying or standing for all of Joshua 3 next week either. So um, Joshua 2, we will also be uh, moving over to Ephesians 2. We're not going to be flipping back and forth quite as much like we did last week, but we will be there a little bit later. Um, I loved the song that, uh, the second song that we just sang, No Longer Slaves, because if you notice, that's our, our subtitle for the book of Joshua. And that's got a very distinct purpose. Joshua follows the book of Exodus in which God leads his people Israel out of slavery into freedom. And they don't quite yet get all the way into their land of inheritance. They are forced to wait outside. They're forced to stay on the opposite side of the Jordan from the promised land. And then we get into Joshua. And so Joshua being subtitled, No Longer Slaves, is a clue to us of what Joshua is about, that Joshua shows us the hope and the promise that we are no longer slaves, but it also shows us how to live as no longer slaves, because we have this tendency to constantly go back into our fleshly way of living, because we're we're saved by Jesus but we're still living in this broken world. We're in between. We're in this already, not yet. So we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit to live free lives in Christ, but we're still weighed down by the sin in us and around us. And so as we are no longer slaves, how do we live as God's children, chosen, holy, and dearly loved, if you remember from Colossians. And so um, I will get to that answer in just a second, but I want to ask you a question. How important is it for someone who is powerful to also be good? 
How important is it for someone who is powerful to also be good? If you're a Spider-Man fan, you're probably already thinking with great, resp- with great power comes great responsibility, right? Is that Uncle Ben? Is that his name? I haven't seen Spider-Man since Tobey Maguire was in it, so I'm sorry if there's any diehard Spider-Man fans. But think about someone in power, someone who has political power and influence, maybe financial power, social power. How important is it that those people are also good? I think we can see, yes, very. I think we can see that in the war in Ukraine, we've got an eyewitness account from a distance, but we've got an eyewitness account of a nation with lots of power, but an unwillingness to use it for good, ultimate good. Okay, now think about it from the flip side. Think of someone who is ultimately good or or purely good, but has no power to live out of that goodness. Maybe think about a friend or a family member who's got some pretty serious health issues. And the goodness in you to desire their healing, to want life and freedom from disease for them. But you're powerless to do anything about it. Maybe even think, continuing with the Ukraine analogy, that we see the atrocities and the war crimes and we see what's happening over there and we want to do more than just send money or just send food, which are very good things and helpful things, but we want to be able to do more. We want it to stop. But ultimately, we're powerless to do that. So how important is it for someone who has power to also be good. We feel the tensions and the frustrations of having well-meaning motives without the power to act on them. But we also see the hurt and the pain that it causes for someone to be powerful but not good. It's a lot more than just the the physical uh, damage that we can see, right? The problem is not Russia, The problem is not big pharma, big tech. It's not CNN. It's not fake news. It's not even coronavirus or cancer. The problem with all humanity is under the surface. It's the problem of sin. It's this natural bent we have to choose our own way, to go in our own direction, thinking that we can find satisfaction for ourselves thinking we can find success for ourselves, that we are the only ones who are for our good. The problem of sin is underneath all of these other problems, and it's seemingly invisible, but it's so much bigger. Sin is what makes us all desperate for and longing for an ultimate ruler who is both powerful and good. We need someone powerful and good because uh, the Green Goblin is going to keep coming back, right? It may not be him. It's going to be another bad guy. There's going to be another Russia. There's going to be another coronavirus. 
We need the problem dealt with. We need someone powerful and good. So like we've said before, in the last couple of sermons through Joshua, we're presented with two options as humans, right? We can, option one, trust and follow God, trust his way that he's for our good, or we can trust ourselves and follow in our own direction. And so where we are in the book of Joshua, um, God has just called and appointed Joshua, given him authority and said, I'll be with you. You can be strong and courageous because I will be with you. Remember all the things I've done for you? Remember how I got you to this point? Remember how I called you in the miracles I did with Moses? I'm gonna be with you just like that. And then we see Joshua take his appointment as the leader and pronounce it to the people of Israel. And what do they say? Okay, we'll trust you. We'll trust that you're following God only if you are present with God, only if you truly follow God. God's authority. They commit their allegiance to Joshua based on his own allegiance to God. And so this is our first mission. We're stepping out of the call and appointment into direct action. And the first story that we get, Joshua sends out these spies, right? He sends out spies into the land It's actually a callback to Numbers 13 and 14, if you want to write that down and go read that later. There's these distinct differences between Numbers 13 and 14 and Joshua 2. One, in Numbers 13 and 14, we see uh, that Moses sends out 12 spies. Ten of them come back saying, we got to call this off. If we go in there and try to take over this land, we're going to die. Those men are like grasshoppers. The land is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. Those men are, excuse me, those men are like giants. We are like grasshoppers. And then there's two spies out of the 12 that say, no, 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 no. They're they're not wrong. Those guys are giants. But God made us a promise. And you can also look back in Exodus 15, the very moment Israel crosses the Red Sea in Exodus, Free from slavery, the Egyptian army is wiped out. Moses sings a song. He writes a worship song on the heels of their salvation. And in it, he says, God prophesies through Moses. He says, I will make the Canaanites melt away and tremble. And so when these two spies, one of which who is Joshua, comes back with the report that the land is good and God will give it to us, They're remembering Exodus 15. They're remembering that God has already promised to give them the land, and they're trusting him. And so we end up in Joshua 2, and Joshua says, I remember, I remember going into that land. I memorized that song that Moses sang. Numbers 14.8 says, if the Lord delights in us, he will surely give us this land. And Joshua was the man that said that. He remembers, if the Lord delights in us, he'll give us this land. What that means, the land is attached to the promise that we are the people of God. And he's got a purpose for us to bless the world and bring the whole world under his reign and his kingdom. So we start in Joshua 2, standing on the foundation of not only Numbers 13 and 14, but also Exodus 15, when God prophesies through Moses and says, I will make the Canaanites tremble and melt away. 
All you have to do is trust and follow me. There's three things in all of chapter two. Two things, I'm sorry. Two things in all of chapter two that gets repeated three times. That's where I got the three from. Two things that get repeated three times. God is giving the people the land and the inhabitants melt away. A direct reflection of Exodus 15. God is giving the people the land and the people are in fear and they melt away. And that's to communicate to the nation of Israel, to Joshua, their leader, and to the nation of Israel that God's plan and promise still stands. It still stands 40 years later. We're still moving in the same direction and God calls them into the land, right? But it's not just Israel that's being formed, that's being shaped to trust and follow God. It's not just Joshua and his two spies that he sends out. It's not just the 12 tribes of Israel waiting on the other side of the Jordan. There's people on the, other, on the inside. There's people in the land that's about to be defeated. And so we see a dichotomy of what could happen to those people. What we'll see is, is some will trust and some will reject. But let's first look. Our first story is a Canaanite, idol-worshiping prostitute named Rahab. The three things about her, where she lives, what she believes in, and what her vocation is, all three of those condemn her as separate from God. That three is an emphasis, just like the three repetitions of that God is giving us the land and the people melt before us. That th those three things are an emphasis. It's emphasizing that Rahab is far from God. She's infinitely far from God. So far that she could never recover that kind of distance. But what Ashley read to us in 8 through 14 was that she knows somehow that God sent them through the Red Sea. She's thinking back about Exodus 15 too. God sent them through the Red Sea and even while they were waiting to cross into the Jordan, they were attacked by a couple of different kings and God saved them from those kings. So uh, over space and time of 40 years, Rahab is aware that Yahweh, the God of Israel, loves and saves his people. How did she hear that story? Why does it mean anything to her? And how long has it been that she's been waiting to be on the receiving end of that kind of goodness and power? Let's read verse one. We're gonna start in verse one, and then some of us may have to flip the page. We're gonna skip over to uh, verse 10. Verse one, Joshua two. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho, because that's where they would start. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. They found refuge in her home. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Here it is. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab just made one of the most pure, sincere, and true statements about a God that she is far from. How did she know? How did she see? We're going to get into the world of Rahab for just a second, so I want you to use your imaginations. Um, Use your imagination and think of this ancient uh, Middle Eastern city-state It's a a small enough city-state to be surrounded by a stone wall. And within that wall live the poorest people of the region. The poorest of the poor. They're so poor they can't buy land, so they have to build their house against the wall that protects the city. They're the most vulnerable to protection, or to attack. So Rahab lives in the wall of the city, vulnerable to attack, And as a prostitute, she's a slave to an industry that makes her an object, not a person. Just those two things alone, can you see the bondage and the slavery that she's in? Can you feel it? Wouldn't you want out of that kind of slavery? Not to mention that she's a Canaanite which means that she worships a false god. See, we're familiar with a term called atheist. That, that pretty much didn't exist in this time. Everyone had a god that they worshiped, but there was only one true god. Rahab grew up worshiping false gods, begging them for freedom, begging them for fortune. But they had no real power, and no real goodness. She was a slave to her vocation. She was a slave to her God, her false God. And she was a slave to her destitution. Vulnerable, poor, oppressed, objectified. She's broken and she's weak. And she can't hide it. There's no hiding your status as the poorest person around in an industry where everyone knows what you do. There's no hiding that. In our eyes, Rahab seems to be the most unlikely candidate for God's salvation. She seems to be the farthest away. She's an idol-worshiping Canaanite prostitute. And in a male-dominated society, Morally and religiously devout. I'm not just talking about ancient Middle Eastern culture. I'm talking about the West, about America as well. In our eyes and in the audience's eyes of this original text, Rahab was not worthy of salvation. Why? Because she had nothing to offer She had no goodness and no power of her own. Let me remind you, where man looks at the outer appearances, the Lord looks at the heart. 
And Rahab longed for the steadfast love and kindness of a God who would save his people, not use them. Of a God who would split the seas of judgment and oppression and not overwhelm his people with them. Rahab longed for the stories that she heard of this God of Israel who loved his people to be her story. So she sees these men come into her home and she knows it's her chance. She knows it's her chance to get in the family. From a distance of time and space, Jericho was not anywhere near this Red Sea miracle. From a distance of time and space, this tiny speck of faith that Rahab had, that maybe, just maybe, God would love me too. Maybe he would show me kindness. The power and the goodness of the God of Israel reached into the darkness of Jericho and saved this poor, oppressed, broken woman. God is powerful. God is good. We simply get to trust him and follow him. We have this deep inner longing for someone or something to be powerful and good for us because we're so limited. And we know that we can't keep up. And to this woman who is so aware of her brokenness and her need, so desperate for someone to step in, she's able to confess that God is powerful and God is good. Let me read that verse 11 again. And as soon as we heard it, as soon as we heard that your God had done these miracles for you, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In one statement, she rejects all of the false religious gods that she'd been worshiping her whole life. And she confesses God to be the true God. As I was studying this and I was trying to break through all of the, the head knowledge and, and all of the commentary work and the, the language, the connections to the Torah and the New Testament, I, I just wanted to, to know, okay, how does, this, how does this connect to me? How do I connect my heart into this passage? Because it would be really easy for me to stand up here and just tell you all the things I know, preach a sermon on things that are true and that, that are good, that I know. But what I need and what you need is something in this Joshua chapter two for us to believe in, something for us to cling to, something for us to meditate on that teaches us who God is and what he's doing, that teaches us who we are and how we respond to him. And I just prayed, and I prayed, and I kept reading, and I journaled, and I prayed, and it wasn't until I stopped, and I just walked away. I was driving home on Tuesday afternoon, and it just clicked. The Holy Spirit told me, Ryan, you're so used to performing. 
you're so used to pretending you're not Rahab. We live in this world that teaches us that it's good to project who we want to be. It's good for us to have this false self image, this projection of ourselves that we want other people to believe about us. Because think about it, we, we are not controlled, we don't act out of who we think we are, nor do we act out of who other people think we are. We act out of who we think other people think we are. Does that make sense? I want to change what you think about me. And that's how I'm going to live. And so I project this false self, this put together self, this prays enough and reads enough and is kind enough to his kids, smart enough, fantastic preacher. I have this projection of myself that makes me feel safe, that makes me feel like I'm okay, like I'm enough. This is my false self. This is a projection of who I want the world to see me as and accept me as because the real me is unacceptable. The real me is a Canaanite prostitute woman. The real me is broken and needy and helpless and destitute. And so we have these projections And God is calling us to live in the reality of who we are. Went off my manuscript for a second. Rahab teaches us that we don't really have the capacity to keep up with this projection. She doesn't teach us a moral lesson about being kind to God's people, okay? She doesn't teach us about what hospitality is. She doesn't teach us when it's okay to lie. God did not need her lie, by the way. She could have told the truth about those men and God would have still protected them. But the lie shows the rawness of her reality, the rawness of how far she really is, that just... Instantly, she, she just always lived outside of the truth. That It was easy for her to not tell the truth, but God still saves her in spite of her vocation, in spite of her living, in spite of her religion, in spite of her practices and her lies. Rahab did not have the capacity to project a false self. That had already been broken a long time ago. And so for us us to learn something from Rahab, for us to break free of these projections, these false self narratives that we continue to tell ourselves, we have to learn two things. Really, we have to learn two people. We have to learn ourselves. Know who your false self is. What is it that you want people to see? What is it that makes you most anxious? We're projecting our false self when the anxiety of conflict reminds us that we're not okay with somebody else. We're projecting our false self 
when we hide in our sin and we find ourselves unwilling to confess because we want to make sure that this image is protected. And so we hide and we don't tell the truth to the people close to us. We're living in our false self projecting when we're anxious or we're stressed about making sure that our lives, our our house is perfectly clean, our kids are perfectly obedient, our grades are perfect, that I'm okay with this person and that person, not in any conflict. But when you realize that in Christ, you don't have to be perfect because he's already given you the very thing you need. Chosen by God, made holy, set apart, pure, blameless, and true, sincere, deep, and dear love from your Father. We don't have to live in the projection that we want the world to see. We can be honest with ourselves. Know yourself. Know what it is that is pushing you to keep performing. Because what you're presenting to other people is also the false self that you present to God. And you find yourself acceptable to him based on your merits. Jesus set us free from that by living the perfect life, by by performing in every way that we never could. There was no false self for him. He lived purely in his identity as God's son so that we could have the same opportunity. And he died an innocent death on the cross in order to save us from having to die that death. And he rose again to new life because he made it possible for us to rise again into new life with him. I think also one reason that Rahab is in the genealogy, or excuse me, in um, Joshua 2, is to show us that we are Rahab, but also that God takes the lowly, the humble, the broken, the desperate, and he raises them up. In Matthew 1.5, we see that uh, Matthew gives us the lineage of Jesus and Rahab's name is in the lineage of Jesus. She's in the lineage of King David. She's in the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, Savior of the world. And I think one of those reasons that she's in there is to show us who God is willing to let in his family. Let me, let me read um, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Let's flip there. We'll be in verses one through 10. Some of you probably already know this pretty well. And there's two words in there, two of the tiniest words that have the biggest impact on our life. Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse one. And you, yes, you, were dead in the trespasses and sins in whence in which you once walked. Think Rahab, helpless, 
powerless, dead to the world, an object, not a person. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now in the work, now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who reject God, among whom we all once lived. All, meaning all, every one of us. No one is, is outside of this all. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, choosing the second way to go in our own direction, making our own selves God, making sure that we find satisfaction and joy for ourselves. But God, I find it ironic that two tiny words have such big impact. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He gives us a new identity as his own children so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. A blessing to bless the world, right? He saved us so that we would bless the world with his love. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. At one time, we were walking in this worldly, fleshly direction. But God. Rahab has her own but God story. She was an idol-worshiping Canaanite, destitute, poor. But God saved her, brought her into the family of promise. She got to live free in the land where she once lived as a slave. She married a prince and then finds herself in the genealogy of King David and King Jesus. What if we all lived like this was our also, also our reality? What if we all finally realized that we're children of God, chosen, holy, and beloved? And that he's got a life of full joy for us. What if we were able to put down our false selves to not live in a protective projection of perfection? Talk about alliteration. But we were able to trust and follow the identity that we have in Christ. What if we trusted the Holy Spirit in us who believe 
to make us into our true selves. I think it would change two primary things about the way that we live. It would change, one, how we see ourselves as individuals, because your salvation is for you. Your identity is for you. So it would change the way that we see ourselves. We'd stop beating ourselves up so much. But it would also change the way that we see ourselves as a whole church. We'd begin to realize that we're not, I'm not just saved for me. I'm saved because now I'm a part of a body of believers who are made one together. We are a collective, chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. I think we'd, we'd stop putting so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect. We'd stop putting so much pressure on ourselves to, to make sure that this image that we want people to see us as, as put together, as smart, as gifted. God gives you your gifts to live in freedom, not to use them to create a mask of perfection, but it would, it would let us live in that freedom, the freedom of that identity. We'd probably also be freed up to be a lot more gracious with one another. If we're gracious with ourselves, then we can be gracious with each other. It means that we'd, we'd be able to confess our sins because we're not worried about what our image is to those people that are near to us. And we don't just like walk down the hall you're like, hey, I yelled at my kids today. How are you? <laughs> the people that are closest to us, the community that we have, this is why the church is necessary. This is why a close circle of believers as your friends is so necessary. Because we don't have to project when we know that the people we're talking to are also not projecting. Part of the reason that I get so frustrated when my kids just straight up disobey me is because I have an expectation on myself for perfection that I then project onto them to be perfect. So we get frustrated when other people don't live up to what we hold ourselves up to. Does that make sense? I'm wording this different than what's on my manuscript, so I hope it, I'm not jumbling up the concept. We hold people to the standard that we hold ourselves to, not the identity that we have in Christ and the freedom that we have. And so being able to live as chosen, holy, and dearly loved children, I'd be able to see myself different. I'd be able to see all of us different. But I think it would also change the way that we see the world outside. It would change the way that we see the people who do not trust and follow Jesus. We might stop, we might stop assuming that non-Christians are our enemies and instead maybe they're like Rahab and they know their brokenness. They just need the people of God to come into their home and show them the steadfast love and kindness of God. Maybe we'd see just how much like Rahab we are and our neighbors are and our family 
And we'd stop being frustrated with ourselves and other people, the world outside the church. Being, we'd stop being frustrated that they can't shape up, that they can't clean up their act. God is powerful. God is good. We simply get to trust and follow him. Remember, uh, we've got our three communion tables. So we've got the, the two on the sides up front and then one in the back. And as we take communion together, I, I, I just, r- real quick, when we talk about communion, we have this like Pavlovian response that, um, okay, got to close up my Bible, pack up my notes and do all that. And that's okay. If you can do that while you're listening, go for it. But when we talk about communion, this is a teaching moment that we use because we're not supposed to just mindlessly take communion. Scripture warns us against that. What's the purpose? The purpose of communion, I'm telling you now. When I, when I pray and end, then we can worry about closing our, our, our Bibles up and put our pens away. I'm sorry if that comes off too harsh. I'm a, I used to be a teacher and it was like five minutes before the bell, the kids would look at the clock, oh, okay. I'm still talking and they're packing their backpacks away. So, sorry, it's just a reflex. But I say it because I need you to know why we take communion. This is, this is a moment of, of pastoral love for you. We take communion because together as God's church, we are confessing that we are united in the image that Christ gives us, in our identity that Jesus gives us as his chosen, holy, and dearly loved children. We are confessing that we're putting down the false self and we're trusting Christ in us by putting this symbol of Christ in us. That's why we take it together because my salvation is for me, but it's not just for me. If you have not trusted Jesus, if you're, if you're sitting in this room this morning, you have not put your faith in Christ to save you from sin, to give you that but God story like Rahab had, like those of us who believe have, if you have not trusted Jesus to set you free from the pressure of performance to keep up with the slavery of sin and death, then, then we're gonna ask that you not take communion this morning, but instead would you take the time to pray and reconsider. Consider following him, consider trusting him. He's won this new identity for you and he welcomes you into the family with open arms. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus to save us and now we follow him, we remember together that God's ultimate power and goodness is shown to us in his son, Jesus. His most great and triumphant display of love, steadfast love and kindness is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his body that was broken, in his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. God is powerful and God is, is good. We simply get to trust and follow him. Now you may pack up. Holy Father, we confess to you that we are all too often 
distracted by our false selves, distracted by this image that we want other people to believe is true about us. God, would you break through our hearts and give us this longing for the truth of our true selves to be found in you? Would you free us from slavery to this false self, from slavery to sin and death? Would you help us to be weak and desperate like Rahab? To remember your power and your goodness that you've shown your people and come to you asking for mercy, knowing that you've already given it to us in your son, Jesus. God, we confess this together as a church. We confess this individually as your children. Would you soften our hearts and show us that we are no longer slaves. We thank you for your son. It's through his power and authority, through his life, death, and resurrection that you've made this possible for us to be your children. This is why we pray. Amen. Um, As I'm standing over there, trying to sing, can't get out of my head that I just totally called you guys out, packing up during communion. Now listen, the Holy Spirit just gave us a case study. I'm sitting over here worried that you think I'm rude because my projected self of being kind and patient and loving and nurturing and pastoral, that just got crushed. So I have a moment to trust that in Christ, I'm already chosen, holy, and loved. Okay? And you, regardless of how you responded, whether you're like, well, I'm not packing up. (laughs) Or maybe you were and you feel anxious about that. You have a moment to trust that in Christ, that doesn't matter. You are chosen, holy, and loved. Even something so small that, that seems so innocuous. I'm grateful now to come up here and make that confession that the Holy Spirit is right here giving us a tangible example to follow him. Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is our benediction this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
We've gathered as the church. Now go and be the church. Go in peace.